Lord, I just uh, want to lift your name up this morning. I want to bless you. As I stand here this morning, Lord, as we sit here this morning, Lord, there are so many things that we have to be grateful for and thankful for. Lord, there are so many things that weigh on our mind that block our thinking of all those good things that we ought to be thankful for and blessing your name for. So, Lord, right now, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would clear our hearts, that you would clear our minds of those distractions that would take us away from just lifting up your name, from blessing you, from just thanking you, Lord God, for seeing another day, for being here, Lord God, to worship in our right minds and to worship you, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord God, I pray that we would be open enough, and our hearts would be receptive enough today to hear your word, to grow deeper in our faith, to love you more. Lord, I pray that no one here today would leave the same way they came this morning, but Lord, that they would be closer to you because they came to meet you today. We bless you, Lord. We love you. In your name, we pray these things. Amen. 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 God bless you, living truth. Um, If you would uh, turn with me, please, to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are going to be in several passages this morning. Um, So you're going to need all 10 fingers, I believe, this morning to to hold your places in your your word, in in your Bible. You should have a Bible. If you do not have a Bible, um, an usher or someone will help you find a Bible. But if you don't have a Bible, shame on you. Shame on you. You should have your word with you um, when you come into the word of the, into the house of God. First Thessalonians 1. And if you don't know where First Thessalonians is, that's okay. No shame in that right now. Find First Thessalonians. Chapter 1. It reads this way. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. I'd like you to look at verse 3. Verse 3, Paul, in talking to the Thessalonian church, those at Thessalonica, is reminding them that he's constantly in prayer for them. Something special happened in Thessalonia. The believers or people were coming to faith. Gentiles were coming to the faith. Gentiles were believing in Jesus Christ. Gentiles were just coming and coming by um, by the masses and word was getting out. The Gentiles are being saved. The Gentiles are being saved. First Thessalonians is Paul's first letter, one of his first letters, earliest letters. And Paul wishes to impart um, some wisdom and knowledge and, and, um, and, and grace and got more gospel. And he just wants to impart more to them because they're being reported. What's happening is being reported all over. In verse 3, Paul says this, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. There's three things I want you to see in this verse. 
your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness in hope. There are three things that mark the new believer, that mark the believer, a believer, any believer, you as a believer. Three things that should distinguish a believer. One, your work of faith. Two, your labor of love. And three, your steadfastness and hope. Those are the markers for a true believer. One who has claimed Jesus Christ for themselves. One who has accepted Christ as their Lord and Master. They should have a faith that is demonstrated in what they do. A faith that Paul says, a faith that works. I'd like to look at that this morning. I wish there was time to do all three, a faith that works, a labor that loves, and, and a uh, hope that endures, or a steadfastness of hope. There's only time for faith this morning to talk about that idea of faith that works. It's so important to us today. Saving faith, true faith, works. Saving faith works. And we've got to be, um, there's, a, there's a fearful biblical truth in that statement. There is a faith that works. There is a faith that saves. But just as, I mean, but um, uh, more, what strikes fear in me, what makes my heart beat fast, is the fact that there's a faith that doesn't save as well. That's a scary idea. That's a scary thought. There's a faith that saves and there's a faith that does not save. And our passage this morning is going to distinguish the two. How do I know which one I have? How do you know which one you have? You say you have faith. I say I have faith. There's a faith that saves. There's a faith that does not save. How do you know which one do you have? And do you have the right one? There's no more important question today, this morning. Not just for us here in the uh, not just for, for those outside the church, but I'm just talking specifically about people who name the name of Christ, who say they believe in Christ. There's no more important question. Is my faith the saving faith? Let me try to uh, uh, get through this or, or rush through this this morning. There are profess professing Christians, self-professing Christians, who believe that they have the one, but in reality, they have the other. I cannot leave you today until you understand the, the, the distinction between the two and know which one you have. Jesus said in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said in verse 21, not, any, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many, many miracles? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity, you who practice lawlessness. There are some who will believe that they have the saving faith the faith that saves. And they're going to believe that to the day they die, to the day they stand before Jesus Christ, their maker. And on that day, like Jesus said, they are going to be surprised. 
on that day, they're going to be shocked. They lived their entire life believing that they were saved, that they had the faith that saves them. And on that day, they're going to be surprised. What a scary day. What a, what a frightful idea. We need to know here and now which one we have. The church today is full of people who say they are Christians, full of people who say they have faith, full of people who claim the name of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm Christian. And they are self-deceived. They deceive themselves. Let us not be deceived today. Well, what reveals genuine faith? What demonstrates or what shows true saving faith? How do I know that I have that saving faith? That when I die, when I close my eyes on this side of eternity and I open my eyes on the other side of eternity, that I will be there in the presence of Jesus Christ and in heaven forever. How do I know that I have that saving faith that will not have me to open my eyes on the other side and be in a, a place in a state of eternal torment? Hell is real. Hell is real. How do I know that you have saving faith? How do I know that you are saved? How do you know that I am saved, that I have that saving faith? How do we know? Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1. We'll start there. My main text this morning is James. We may get to it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to get there. My main text is James chapter 2. But before we go there, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Listen to the account of Simon, a man named Simon. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. They had just stoned Stephen, the first martyr, the church. And, and Saul, who later would become Paul, is sitting there, and he's excited about that idea. The fact that Stephen has died, they've, uh, they've killed him, they've, they've put him to death, they've stoned him. And on that day, verse 1, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria except the apostles. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul, I mean, Saul at this time is a slobbering fool. He's a maniac going from house to house, dragging Christians from their homes, people who have claimed the name of Christ, people who are saying, I am saved. He's going from house to house, dragging them out, throwing them into prison. There's a price to be paid for claiming that you belong to Jesus Christ. There's a price to be paid. Some people are willing to pay it. Some are not. But Paul is this maniac right now, roaming to and fro, seeking whom he can devour, what Christian he can devour and toss into jail. Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered uh, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, um, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. 
For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Verse 10, and they all from smallest to the greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they, um, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. Make a note of that. Even Simon, this sorcerer, this, this one who's doing magic and practicing magic and, and, and doing these things, even Simon believed. And after being baptized, make a note of that, Simon believed and Simon was baptized. Even after believing and being baptized, he continued, with, uh, continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. We have Simon, this sorcerer, this man who had been practicing all these, these magic arts and all and, and just um, ast astonishing and amazing the people. Simon comes to believe. He believed what, uh, what Philip had been preaching. Believed so much so that he uh, became or he got baptized. He believed and he was baptized. And not only that, but he followed. He continued on with Philip. He followed Philip in this ministry. So he was part of that. He believed, he was baptized, and he followed. Look at verse the 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem had heard, when the apostles in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying uh, their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and I believe there was a sign for this. There had to be an, uh, been a sign for them to see that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. I believe that that sign was speaking in tongues, speaking in foreign languages and speaking in tongues. There was something visible, something evident about that, the Holy Spirit, them, uh, them receiving the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit coming upon them. It says, when the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he, verse 18, Simon offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This man who had believed and had been baptized and was following he sees the power of the Holy Spirit at work, and he sees the power of the Holy Spirit transforming and changing lives. And he says to the apostles, please, take this money. I will give you money. I will pay you for this gift, for this power, for this authority. But Peter said to him, verse 20, 
May, um, but Peter said to him, may your silver, may your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, um, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. And this fool, this, this man says, for I see, um, I'm sorry, Paul says, for I see that, or the apostles say, um, Peter says, but I, I see that you are in, in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He has no relationship with God. He can't even pray himself for himself. He can't ask for forgiveness himself. He doesn't know how to do that. We're talking about a man who has believed, who said he believes, a man who got baptized. Lord, I I want to be baptized because I believe in a man who followed Philip. It was not clearly evident that he was believing or had that saving faith. It wasn't noticeable. we, we, We don't see that. In fact, with our eyes, as we look at him, when we read those early verses, he looks and sounds just like a lot of us, a lot of people in the church today. I believe. I've been baptized. I'm at church. Come to church every Sunday. At least once a Sunday, once a month. But I believe he looked and sounded and acted just like us, imperceptible. But his heart was made visible. His heart did come to, we, we did see, we can see in this passage that he was not saved. He did not have that saving belief, that saving faith. It was made manifest. That's a scary idea or thought to me that someone that we can do all those things and still not be saved. So how do I know that I have it? How do I know that the faith that I possess, the faith that I'm claiming, the faith that I'm clinging to, how do I know that that's the one that saves? Faith is invisible. I can't, it's not something that, uh, it's just invisible, like gravity and, and, and like electricity, like, like air. It's, it's invisible. The way that I know that gravity is there is because of its effects, on things. The way I know that electricity is there is because of its effect. The air. I cannot see the air. I cannot see the wind, but I know it's there by the effects that it has, by what it does and what it does to things. Because it's invisible and faith is like that. If I take a pen and I drop that pen, I can say, there's gravity. I see the effect of gravity. That's how I know gravity is there. I can take that same metal pen and stick it into a socket. And get zapped, and I say, that was electricity. There's electricity, though I could not see it. And the air the same way. I can't, I can't see it, but I can see the trees sway. And I can see the trees moving or the leaves rustling along the ground. And I know, oh, there's wind. There it is. I know them. I know it by their effects. Faith is just like that. It's invisible. Proof of their existence is in what they do. It's in there, the proof of of, of faith's existence, the saving faith, the faith that saves, the proof of it is in what it does, its effect. 
Now turn to James chapter 2 with me, please. James chapter 2. We got there. There's some more stuff on my page, but I'm going to leave it right there. James chapter 2. While you're turning to James chapter 2, there's a story of this man who was this tightrope artist. And he was a great tightrope artist. And he stretches this rope across Niagara Falls. And, and the crowds are gathering because they're seeing him getting ready to walk across Niagara Falls. The crowds are gathering and he steps out onto that tightrope and he begins to walk. And a crowd is just uh, amazed at, uh, how, at his poise and, and how confident he is as he steps out onto that rope. And he walks across and he gets halfway and there's a little bobble. But it's a show. They're going, ooh. But it's just a show. He quickly regains his composure and he's standing there in the middle wire just standing there. Comfortable. Confident. At that point, he turns around and he starts walking backwards on the wire. He, turns, he starts walking backwards and he stops. And then he sits down on the wire. And then he stands up on the wire. And he starts moving forward on the wire. And he takes a jump up and he lands on the wire, all confident. And then he continues across the wire till he gets to the other side. The crowd is amazed. <laughs> Just amazed. And then he comes back onto that wire. Coming back the other way, he grabs a wheelbarrow. And he takes that wheelbarrow out onto the wire, and he's, he's there with the, with the wheelbarrow, and he stops in the middle of it. The wheelbarrow is nice and balanced. He steps into that wheelbarrow, and he balances himself in the wheelbarrow on the wire. The crowd's like, wow. He carefully gets out of the wheelbarrow, steps back onto the rope, and he comes back across that rope backwards, confident in what he's doing, confident in his abilities. And the crowd, when he gets back at the other side, goes, wow, outstanding. And he turns, and he points to someone in the crowd, and he says, do you believe that I can get across that rope safely? Yeah, yeah, I just saw you do it. Do you believe that I can, that I can, can, can make it across there um, easily, and, and it's an easy thing for me to do? Yeah, I just saw you. That's amazing. And he stares at the man. He says, well, get in the wheelbarrow. We're going across. <laughs> do you believe that I can do that. Yeah. I just saw it. I've seen what you can do. I believe you can do that. Jump in. Jump in. Now that's different. Now that's different this time. James chapter 2 is going to explain that for us a little bit. James chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What profit or what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Is that saving faith? What profit, what good is it if someone says he has faith? Notice what the apostle says. James says, he, he doesn't say, what profit if someone has faith, but they have no works? What did he say? What profit if a man says he has it? We're going to say this is what theologians say is a, is a said faith. You say you've got it. You say you believe. What profit is that? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need, and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, <clears throat> go in peace, be warmed and, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What good is that? What use is that? What profit is that? 
What does that mean? Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. He's going to say again in verse 20, but you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, is dead. And verse 26, he's going to say, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And those 10 verses, those 13 verses, he repeats it three times. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works, that faith, this said faith, without works is dead. What does that mean? Dead. Dead means dead. <laughs> there is absolutely no use for it at all whatsoever. A dead body, a dead body just rots. Without the spirit, without the spirit, the body is dead, and it's good for nothing except for, for burying, because if we don't bury it, it, it starts to stink, and it starts to become diseased, and it starts to spread that disease. It's good for nothing. It's dead. It's good for nothing but being put in the ground and, and covered over with dirt. I don't want to sound irre irreverent, or, but that's, that's what it's good for. It's dead. Faith is the exact same way. It just stinks. Faith without works, it's dead. It's good for nothing but being buried and covered over with dirt. Faith without works is dead. What do we mean by that? Faith without works. Well, James is talking about saving faith, real, real faith, true faith. He's talking about faith. How, he's, he's trying to answer that same question I posed at the beginning. How do I know that I have that one? How do I know I have that saving faith? And James says, I'm going to tell you that so that you know. So that you're confident. If you have that faith that saves, it is going to do something. It is going to produce something. That word work has to do, the Greek word has to do with product, something that's produced. It's a, it's a product. It's something that's produced. That's what saving faith does. It produces something. It produces this work. We, if we have this faith, have a compulsion. We are compelled by the spirit that now fills us, that now dwells within us. We're compelled to do some things. We're compelled to work. Not to get that saving faith. That's not what James has said. That's not what he is saying. He's saying the saving faith produces that. Saving faith produces work. There, is work. there are works associated with this faith. Saving faith does some work. Produces something. And if you're not producing something, if the faith that you're claiming is not producing something, and James only uses one example. Somebody comes into your assembly, a brother comes into your assembly, a saved person comes into your assembly, and they don't have clothes, they're, 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 they, they have no clothing or food, and you just say to them, I hope all is well. I hope you get what you need. Go, go be filled, be warmed. God loves you. That's just one example James uses. What good is that faith that you are clinging to or holding on to? It didn't do anything. It didn't convince you that you have the saving faith. It didn't convince me, definitely doesn't convince me. As I look and I see people who are claiming and naming the, 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 the name of Christ, 
and there is no work in their life that shows me that, that demonstrates that to me, I get confused. You say you have Christ. You say you believe. You say you have this faith. I, I, I don't see it. I might say I have it, and for you to look at my life and go, Mel, show me. That's the theme of James chapter 2. Show me your faith. Show me your faith. It's invisible. So you can't just say it, I believe. That does nothing for me. That shows me nothing. That proves nothing to me. And worse than for me, it proves nothing and shows nothing to a world that's looking and trying to decide if they want that same faith. It does nothing as a witness and a testimony to Jesus Christ. It does nothing to just say it and not have anything to demonstrate it or prove it or to back it up. The world is confused today. The world is dark today because of them, because of the darkness of their heart, but also because of false advertising in the Christian church. Folks claiming to be Christians, but not demonstrating it, not proving it. You must prove, you must show, you must demonstrate this faith, your faith. Look at verse, James 2, look at verse 18. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's almost like James enters in in the conversation with someone, someone who's a heckler. James is talking, there's a heckler in the crowd and this heckler is, is saying, you have faith and, and I have works. Show me your faith without works. James responds back, to someone who says, I have faith and, 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 and uh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Show me. How can you show me you have faith and there's nothing, no works that demonstrate that? Give me another way that you can show or demonstrate your faith. Prove your faith. There isn't another way. Not without works. There is no other way to demonstrate to man in this world that you have faith. Not just doing this. There are a lot of people doing this. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. What are you doing to show me that you have that faith? James is saying to the person, uh, James is saying, I will show you my faith by my works, what I do. That's the only way that you can do it. He's asking the person an impossible question. Show me your faith without works. You can't. There is no way to do that. Verse 19. See, you believe that God is one, and you do well. He's applauding them. Outstanding. You claim that God is one. That's the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a good thing to say. That's a good thing to believe. That's a base belief in the Hebrew faith, in the Jewish faith. And so Paul is, James is applauding them, saying, you say God is one. You recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. You recite it, and you recite it well. And that's good. But look what he says. The demons believe that. The demons believe that. Do you know that the devil believes in God? There are no atheist demons. None. Not one. You know the demons believe that God is one? 
Every single one of them believes that God is one. Every demon believes the, the, the great Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every demon believes that. Do you know that every believe, demon believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Every one of them. Do you know that every single demon believes that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again? Every demon believes that. Every demon knows that. Every demon acknowledges that. Every demon is orthodox. There is no non-orthodox demons. There are no atheistic demons. There's no non-orthodox demons. They are all orthodox, and they all believe what I hear many Christians say they believe. I believe in God, the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he came and that he died and he rose for me, that Christ himself is God in the flesh. He came and he died and he rose again. Excuse me. They all believe that. They can all recite that same belief. And James here says, you believe that, so do the demons. You believing that, you saying that, you believing that, that's not enough. The demons believe that. The demons acknowledge that. The demons know that. That is obviously not enough. But see, the demons have one thing better than a lot of us do. A lot of saved and unsaved people do. Because James here says, the demons believe that, and they shudder. Their knees are knocking. They shake. They're frightened. Remember when Jesus showed up and the demon says, what, what, what business do you have with us right now? Our time isn't yet. The demons were, were afraid and frightened. They shudder. They're quaking. They're afraid. And there are many people, and I'm talking about professed Christians, who believe and God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came and died and rose for them. They believe that, and they are not wise enough to tremble at the idea that they don't want to pursue a relationship with him or, or that they want to stay in their sins and they want to keep doing what they do. At least the demons shudder. At least the demons are afraid. There are folks here who aren't. They confess that, and they don't have that fear and that reverence of God in them that even the demons do. That's, that's a shame. But are you willing to recognize, oh foolish fellow, the one that just claimed, the one that just said, the one that believes that God is one, are you willing to recognize that faith, saving faith, without works, is absolutely useless, is dead, has no use at all. That's a scary idea. The demons believe. That's a demonic. There's a, there, there are people, if I can say it this way, have a, a, a demon-like belief in Jesus Christ, meaning they acknowledge it, they know it, they say it's true. It's an intellectual ascent. I, I know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I know that Jesus Christ was here. I know there are people in the church that believe that, and they are not saved. How do I know that? You can look at their life and see there's nothing produced by that said faith. There's no product in it. Matthew 3. Turn to Matthew 3 with me. Matthew 3. 
In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is speaking. This is the beginning of John the Baptist's um, um, ministry or our introduction to John the Baptist um, in his ministry. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent. Verse 3, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, look what's happening. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are also coming out to meet John the Baptist to do what? To be baptized. To be baptized, just like Simon, we just read in, in Acts. They were coming out to be baptized. Not everyone being baptized is coming to be baptized because they are saved. Not everyone. Not everyone who's claiming that Jesus Christ came, the Son of God came and died and, and rose again. Not everyone who claims that, who believes that, is saved and has that saving faith just like these Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized. But listen, what John, look what John did in verse 7. They, they were coming to be baptized. He says to them, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, therefore, do what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you say you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you have repented of your sins, if you have turned around and did a 180, you are no longer facing your sins, you're facing Christ and you're walking towards him every single day, then bear fruit that make that true. Bear fruit that I can see, that people can see, that people will know. Bear fruit of that repentance, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. There's something that is produced. There's a fruit that is produced when you accept Jesus Christ, and it's that saving belief, that saving faith. There's something that's produced in you, and you can't help that. Once, the Spirit, once you've accepted the Spirit and the Spirit of God lives in you and dwells in you, he begins to change you. You are no longer that old creature. You are a new creation, a new creature, and something just starts to bloom in you. Fruit starts to be produced in you because of that Spirit in you. And if you are claiming the name of Christ and you are bearing nothing, no one can see any fruit. You don't have that same Holy Spirit that saves dwelling in you. Now, I'm not talking about instant fruit. You're saved and boom, you are perfect. You've got the perfect fruit. You've got that perfect peach, that perfect plum, that perfect whatever. That takes time. The Spirit of God grows and nurtures and matures you. But that fruit is evident. I know that peach is coming when I first see those buds on the tree. I know it's coming. 
I can see that peach when it, it may be green right now, but I can see it developing. I can see that fruit growing and maturing. I can see that. That is visibly evident. And that's what people should be able to see in you if you have that saving faith. Verse 9, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, <clears throat> our heritage, or, or we have Abraham for our father, and that that is going to save, that that produces saving faith. John the Baptist says, make no mistake, Pharisees, Sadducees, that heritage will not. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. But the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist lets them know, lets us know, there's a confession of faith that's false. And we know it's false by the fruit that, it, that comes of it or the lack of fruit that comes of it. Turn one page, please, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, Jesus Christ is starting that great sermon, the sermon, uh, the sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5, verse 1 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he began to, to teach, teach them, saying, Blessed. And he starts to preach that great sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those, blessed are the gentle for, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he begins that, that, wonderful, that wonderful sermon. And he starts to talk about um, blessing uh, those, uh, those people that persecute you for righteousness, um, for theirs is the, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for the uh, sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, and this is the key verse that I want to point out. Let your light shine before men. Why or how? In such a way that they what? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What do men need to do? Men need to see your great works. Jesus said, let your light shine so that they see your good works. Not just here, not just, there are a lot of folks, Christian folks standing up and just talking the good talk. They talk the good talk, but Jesus said, he doesn't want you to let your light shine so that they can hear about your good deeds or hear he said, let your light shine so that they can see your good works. Jesus, Jesus is, is telling us that we are the salt and light of this earth to be seen. Our good works are to be seen, not just heard. I'm reminded of this story that I heard this week. There's a, mission, a missionary on the mission field, and he's, at, he's in this, this village some small village that's way out, separated from, from civilization, and he's in this village, and he's sitting there, and he's been doing work in this village, but someone, some, some indigenous person comes to him who wasn't a, a part of that little small village, and he comes to him, and this indigenous man says, tell me about this man, Jesus. And the missionary says, why? 
Have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that man says, no, I have not heard it. I have seen it. And I want to know about this man, Jesus Christ. That villager understood Jesus Christ and the gospel, not from what he heard. He sat down and he, he sat with the missionary and he began talking to the missionary about this Christian that he met somewhere. This Christian that he saw, this Christian that he observed, he didn't hear anything. He just was observing him and just saw him. He saw the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw faith. He saw saving faith. And from that, he wanted to know about this man, Jesus Christ. Are people coming to you, asking you, I've seen this in you. I've never spoken to you. You've never spoken to me, but from across the room every day at work, I see this in you. Tell me, what is that? Tell me about this Jesus Christ. Tell me about this Savior. Tell me, tell me what you have. Are they hungry for it? Are they thirsty for what they see that you have? Has anybody done that with you? What works? What product? What fruit are you showing forth or demonstrating as proof of the faith that you have? Why did God save you in the first place? Why did God draw you? Why did God pour out his love on you. Why did he save you in the first place? Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians. I forgot what time we're supposed to be done, so we'll go until the pastor raises his hand in the back or something. Until they're crowded at the back door. That's honest truth. I can't remember. Ephesians chapter 2. Why are you saved in the first place? It still goes along with with what James is telling us in James chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Tell me something. What can a dead person do? Nothing. What power does a dead person have? None. What authority does a dead body have? Can a dead body make itself stand up and make itself right? Can a dead body fix itself, repair itself? What can a dead body do? Absolutely nothing. And Paul tells us that we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses. Don't you dare believe that there's anything that you can do to save yourself, to be saved, to lift yourself out of the muck and the mire and the dirt. There is nothing that a dead body can do. That's why he put it this way. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. There is no work that you can do to be saved because you're dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, oh my. Verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in his mercy, because I couldn't, because I didn't have the power of, uh, in, in within me, because I couldn't do it on my own. I can't boast about anything, but God, 
being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, there is nothing that you could do. There's nothing that you could bring to the table. There's nothing that you could offer to God but your sin. And we were raised up and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, I love this verse, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Why were we saved? Why did he reach down for us? Why did he pour out his, his grace and his mercy and his love? Why did he do that for us? For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Jesus Christ for what? For good works. You were saved to do good works, to produce good fruit. You were saved to do his will. You were saved to do good works, which God prepared before you, prepared beforehand, so that you would walk in them. That's why you have saving faith. That's why you have been given that faith. That's why you have been saved. Saved for good works that God has prepared for you. Part of those good works that God has prepared for you is your witness and your testimony to a lost and dark world. And how can you not produce those works or walk in those works that God has set before you beforehand? How can you not do that? That's what you were saved for, unless you're not. Unless you're not. Unless you don't have that faith, that saving faith. Unless, you, unless it's just a said faith. Because God produces that in us. Workmanship. I love that word, workmanship. It's like handcrafted. Me and my daughter were looking at, at, at frames, uh, picture frames yesterday at, at Hobby Lobby. Love that store. Hobby Lobby. <laughs> the frames were just exquisite. They were just beautiful. They were just, we were just looking at these frames. They were just a workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are God's master art, a master of art, a work of art, his work of art. And just like with any beautiful work of art, it was not created just to be put under the bed. It was not just made and handcrafted and, and carved and made just to be hidden. That master artwork, you don't hide a Picasso. You put that for the world to see. You hold that up high for the world to see. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship. He is going to put us on display. I'm sorry. Look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness and his kindness towards us. We are going to be put on display. The angels are going to look at us and God is going to say, look at that. And the angel's going to go, wow, look at that work of art. Look at that masterpiece. The angels are going to look at Bill and say, wow, look at that masterpiece. God was, what? look at that. 
the, 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 the angel's going to stare at all of these masterpieces that, that God is, has put together, that God has crafted. We are going to be put on display in the ages to come. We will be put on display. The heavenly angels are going to look and go, wow, look at that art. Look at God. Look at God. Look at him. The angels are inquisitive. The angels are looking. The angels, I don't know why we're on this, this, this journey called life that we're on. I do know that I want to be one of those masterpieces. Not for me, but I want the angels to say, look at God. Look at God. He could take that. He could take Mel and look what he did with Mel. Look at God. Not Mel, but look at him. That is the, the grace. That's the, that's the favor. That's the mercy. That's the love that God is pouring out, is, 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 is giving us, is, is handing to us, is offering us. That's what he's offering us. Take that grace. Take that mercy. Show and demonstrate that you have done that, taken that, that you are that you are his workmanship and that you have that saving faith, not for you, but for him. Those who, those who believe in God, those who have that saving faith, I'm just going to run through this. What should they do? No, I'm not. I'm not going to run through it. Right. <laughs> Titus 3. Run Titus 3 with me, please. Titus chapter 3. We're all over. I told you you're going to use all 10 fingers today. All 10. Titus 3. And we might get back to James. Titus Three. Yes, sir. Got you, pastor. Got you, pastor. That's what I needed. Oh, we have communion this morning. We got communion. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you. Titus 3, I'll read it for you. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, confidently so that those who have believed those who have that saving faith will be careful to do what? Engage in good works, good deeds. That's how I know that you have saving faith. That's how you know that you have saving faith. That's how you know. And why do you do these good things? Because it's good. Verse 8, these things are good and profitable for men. Remember what James said? James started off by saying, what profit is it? What good is it if you say you have faith? Paul here would say, it's good. This is the profit. This is what's profitable if you're doing these good things because of the grace that has been shown, because of the faith that you profess. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are these things that, that, are, are, all, that are the results of that saving faith that I've, I've accepted. There are people who say they've accepted Christ and, and they still walk in their flesh. They still walk in immorality and impurity and, and, and their sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. There are people who walk in that and name the name of Christ still. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The product of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified that flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
This is what saving faith produces. It produces good works, good results, good things, good fruit. John Calvin said this, faith alone justifies or saves. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. John Calvin understood that faith is the only thing that justifies us, but that faith, once we are justified, is never alone. It produces these good works. What works vindicate your faith? Are you saved? Are you saved? Show me. That's what the world is going to ask. That's what you need to know so that you become confident that you have that saving faith and that you can walk in those deeds that Christ has set forward for you. It, you need that confidence and that faith. Show me your works. Show man, not, just, not me, Mel, show man your works that they may glorify God. The faith that does not change your life cannot save your soul. Faith produces, and it is something very evident. My prayer today is that you would, if you have not, really dig deep. 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourself to see if you're in this faith, this saving faith. Examine yourself. What I want you to do today is examine yourself because there's a work to be done. There are deeds that need to be produced. There are fruit that need to be produced in your life so that others can see and so that others can glorify God the Father and not drag Jesus' name through the mud like some of us do. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. And I pray that God uses that process in a mighty way in your life, that your kids would never be the same, your house would never be the same, your block would never be the same, the city would never be the same, the state would never be the same, this country would never be the same again, but it starts with you examining yourself. Amen? Father, we bless you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, your goodness, your kindness, your loving kindness, Lord, that is just um, so so um, enduring, Lord. We bless you. We thank you. Lord, I pray right now that you, by the power of your spirit, will fill those who desire to draw closer to you, to, those, to fill those, Lord God, who are questioning. Fill those who are, who are examining themselves. Fill them, Lord God, with a confidence from the response that they get from you and the Holy Spirit, Lord. Fill them with a confidence to do the work that you've ordained and set forth for them to do since the beginning of this world, Lord, since the beginning of time. We bless you, Lord. In your name we pray these things. Amen. If the ushers would come forward.